We'll be reading from Romans chapter 10 and verses 14 to 21. Romans 10, beginning at verse 14. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. I'm sorry. However, they did not all heed the glad tidings, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? At the first, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding, I will anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who sought me not. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, All the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Dear Father, we ask that you would make CBC a body with beautiful feet, that you would stir us up to to true faithfulness in proclaiming joyfully and boldly the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that our faithfulness in declaring that glorious message would not waver, regardless of the response that we receive from men. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. Someone needs to remind me I'm in the habit of not hitting that first slide to show the passage. Just blurt it out. Tell me, show the passage. What do you believe constitutes success when it comes to sharing the gospel? Uh, Do you think that success is when a bunch of people come to Christ every time the message is proclaimed? We all know stories like that, right? Some from the Bible. Acts chapter 2. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preached a message and talked about Jesus Christ. And almost 3,000 people got saved that day and baptized that same day. A couple of chapters later in Acts 4, Peter preached again. And we find out that he was arrested. He and John were arrested. And one of the things that obviously got under the, the... the collar of the Jewish authorities was that about 5,000 people came to Christ after that message. If any of you have ever been to a Billy Graham crusade, uh, it's an amazing experience. And at the end, when he calls for a response, it's unusual if there are not thousands of people, at least hundreds of people who make their way down the floor, uh, many of whom have come to faith 
to profess faith in Jesus Christ. Now, isn't that the way it's supposed to work when the gospel is preached the right way? Well, if you have been trying to share the gospel with other people and you are not getting that kind of a response, shouldn't you just assume that God has other things for you to do and you should leave the work of evangelism to the gifted evangelists? Surely God doesn't expect uh, all of us to be that effective at evangelism, right? Well, have you ever thought about how the Old Testament prophets measured up in terms of the standard of success when it came to the, the call to proclaim the message that God had given to them? Uh, in our weekend of prayer and fasting last week, one of the passages that we were all asked to read in preparation to pray was Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And if you read that passage, then you saw that Isaiah beheld the glory and majesty of God on his throne. And he heard the seraphim, the angels, declare the holiness of God. And because of that encounter, he came to to realize the grievousness of his own sin and the sin of the people in his culture. And then God sent an angel with a coal of fire to touch Isaiah's lips, and he declared him forgiven. And then, of course, Isaiah, having been forgiven, offered himself up as God's ambassador. God said, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah answered, Here I am, Lord, send me. But if you keep reading that same passage... In the very next couple of verses, you'll find that the assignment that God gave to Isaiah was not going to be successful the way men tend to measure success. Because God said to Isaiah in Isaiah 6 verse 9, Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and return and be healed. That's kind of a curious assignment for a prophet of God, isn't it? Especially when you consider that Isaiah was tasked with laying out before, before Israel some of the clearest prophecies regarding Messiah that you'll find in the Old Testament. God called Isaiah to preach the good news about his Redeemer, his Messiah. And yet he told Isaiah in advance that the very people to whom he would spend his life bringing that message would reject the message. So did that make Isaiah's job pointless? Did that make Isaiah unsuccessful? Well, if it did, then pretty much all the prophets were unsuccessful. Because that's the same reception that they, that they got consistently from God's covenant people, Israel. And in fact, that response is entirely in keeping with what the perfect messenger received from, from Israel. Uh, Jesus Christ is the perfect prophet. He was and is both the message and the messenger. 
And yet John 1.10 says, He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. How are you supposed to measure your successfulness as an ambassador of Jesus Christ? Well, it's easy to become discouraged about sharing the gospel when there are so few willing to hear it. But that has actually always been the assignment for us who are the ambassadors of Christ. To faithfully proclaim the good news knowing that most will not receive it. The passage we're looking at this morning in Romans 10 verses 14 to 21 lays out for us God's assignment to His people as bearers of the gospel. We're going to see two parts to this passage. First, beautiful feet and then outstretched hands. Beautiful feet, our glorious calling to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, verses 14 to 17. And Paul really breaks it down for us. He tells us first how the gospel gets into the hearts of men. And he tells us who does the sending. He tells us who it is that's sent. He lays out the message, and then he tells us that not everyone who hears the message ends up believing it. And then from that last point, he goes into the issue of Israel's rejection of the gospel and God's outstretched hands toward Israel. First, beautiful feet. At the end of the last passage that we looked at, uh, in verses 11 through 13, the real heart, the theme that Paul was getting at is anyone, whomever. He said, Whoever will, whoever believes in Jesus, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. And then he said, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And between those two statements, he said, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who will call upon Him. Now in verses 14 to 17, he picks up on that idea, all who will call upon Him. And he lays out for us from start to finish how a man comes to that point. How he comes to call upon the name of the Lord in faith. And he, he explains the, the progress, the progression of events by going through it backward. Starting with the calling and then going backwards to the sending. And he uses a series of questions to impress upon us that each step is dependent on the step that came before. In verses 10 to 15, uh, 14 to 15, excuse me, he says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? If you flip that around to the actual order of events, men are sent to preach. The ones who are sent preach, other people hear the message that's preached, and those who hear believe, and those who believe call on him in whom they have believed. Verse 17 then summarizes that whole process by focusing on just three pieces of it. The proclamation of the word, the hearing of the word, and belief, faith in the word that's proclaimed. Now, before we look at these at these steps, I want to 
briefly uh, touch on something that that kind of came into play a couple of weeks ago when we were in chapter 9, and that is, how does this fit into our understanding of of how the sovereignty of God plays into the issue of man's salvation? If you believe, as I do, that Romans 9 and other passages teach that God chose who would come to faith in Christ and who would not, and that he did so from before the foundations of the earth, then there's a question when you look at all this that says, why bother sharing the gospel? Why bother with evangelism if God's the one who does the choosing? Well, I believe the Bible's answer to that question is very, very simple. God commands us as his people to proclaim the gospel. He chooses to use men as his agents to do that which he has tasked us to do. God doesn't have to use men to proclaim the message any more than he has to use men to do anything. He could he could plaster the gospel across the sky in glowing letters if he wanted to. He could call each person the same way he called Saul on the road to Damascus, just hit them with a flash of blinding light and tell them that they are called to believe in Jesus Christ and to be God's ambassador. But, but the reality, as the Bible presents it, is, is that God chooses to use men as his agents for the propagation of the gospel, just as he has chosen to use men as his agents for a multitude of other things. God didn't need Adam to tend the garden, did he? Or to name animals? You think that the God who spoke that whole universe into being that that Stan was talking about would have had trouble watering his own garden? Do you think he couldn't have given Adam a list of names for the animals? God chose to delegate certain tasks to men throughout the ages. And he chooses to give the task of evangelism to his people. If you accept the idea of human agency that pervades the Bible from cover to cover, then there's really no conflict between God's sovereignty and the assignments that he gives to his people. All right, who is it that does the sending? The first step in the process is somebody has to be sent. Who's the sender? Who initiates the process? Well, Jesus is very clear. We actually looked at this, uh, I think, last week, Luke chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. When Jesus was about to send 70 men out into all the cities into which he was about to go, and he sent them ahead of him to proclaim the message... He said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It's his harvest. God is the sender. He's the one who initiates the process to bring the gospel to men through men. Now, it seems very significant to me that even though... uh, Jesus Christ had personally and directly called Paul to be his messenger of the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul's first missionary journey didn't get underway until the church at Antioch laid hands on him, until they fasted and prayed and laid hands on Paul and Barnabas and sent them into the work. So what that tells me, that and many other passages, is that the sending is also delegated. 
that God is the sender, but that, but, but that God chooses to use his church, especially in the corporate sense, to send out workers into his harvest. And I'm thankful that the body at CBC has, throughout the years that I've been involved in it and long before, been very active at sending men and women into the work of ministry all over this world. I think it's a one of the most critical measures of the health and vitality of a church is what God is doing with that church in other parts of the world. Uh, God has equipped many to do what they're doing today uh, as his ambassadors through CBC. All right, so God is the sender. Who is sent? Who is it that's actually supposed to do the work? In Romans 10:15, Paul quotes Isaiah 52:7. He says, "How beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things." Now it's interesting that Paul speaks in the plural because the passage that he's quoting speaks in the singular. Isaiah 52, 6 and 7, Therefore, God says, Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, I am the one who is speaking. Here I am. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him, and I would capitalize it, who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. Paul speaks in the plural because he's applying to the church that which was initiated by Jesus Christ. But the passage from which he quotes is talking about Christ himself. It's talking about God's Messiah, God's servant, God's messenger. The most beautiful feet in the universe are the feet of Jesus Christ, the perfect messenger. He's the preeminent sent one. The New Testament has a whole lot to say about God sending his son. I went back last week and I looked in the Gospel of John, just that one Gospel, to see how many times Jesus said he was sent from the Father or sent from heaven. You know how many times he said that? Forty-one times in that one Gospel. And if you want an example of someone who was sent Outside his comfort zone, Jesus is the greatest example of all. Because he wasn't merely sent from one human domain to another. He was the bread that came down out of heaven. He's the one who existed in the form of God. He's the one who from eternity past enjoyed perfect fellowship and unity and love in the Godhead. And yet, he came down from heaven and he took the form of a of a man, and he walked among cursed men. And he was tempted in every way that is common to men, yet without sin. And then he took the wrath that we deserved, the wrath of his Father against sin, onto himself. Jesus was sent in the most radical sense of the word. And he, of course, is our example in everything, everything pertaining to the, to the Christian life. And so he is our example as those who are sent. Uh, we are sent to proclaim the message even unto death. 
We are sent to proclaim the message without regard to our comfort. Indeed, without regard to ourselves. We are called to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily, and to follow Christ. So, how many of us are sent by God to proclaim the gospel? In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter is talking to the whole church, to all believers in Jesus Christ, and he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Does that description fit you as a believer in Jesus Christ? Then you have a message to proclaim. Those words, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, those words come from Exodus 19, just before God gave the law to Israel. But Israel failed in that priestly calling to bring the knowledge of the one true God to all the nations of the earth. And yet now God has extended that same priestly assignment to his church. And it doesn't apply only corporately. It applies to every single believer. I'll ask again, have you been called out of darkness into his marvelous light? then you have a message to proclaim. A few verses before these that you see up on the board, Peter said, you also as living stones, plural, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. God's royal priesthood is made up of all the stones that are being built into that household. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul tells all believers to take up the full armor of God. Would you ever look at this passage and assume it's not talking to you? And when he gets to the boots, he says we are to adorn our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. All of us. So if God has delegated to every single one of us the task of proclaiming the good news, how are we supposed to go about doing it? Especially if we're not particularly gifted at evangelism, because evangelism is a spiritual gift. Some have it, some don't. We live in a ridiculously insulated culture, don't we? When I was a kid, people actually went outside of their houses sometimes. When I was a kid, we lived on the steep hill in San Antonio, and my brother and I, could we could run to our neighbor's house at the top of the hill through the back yards. I think there was one fence between us and our neighbor, and it was this short see-through cyclone fence, and we just kind of hopped over it in one bound. But now, we live in a world filled with fortified castles and electronic drawbridges called garage door openers. Debbie and I had a neighbor for months that we never saw, and then they moved. 
We knocked on the door once with some brownies in our hand and nobody answered. So how do we go about proclaiming the gospel in that context? (laughs) Well, we're actually pretty creative critters. God made us that way. And it's amazing how creative we can be when it comes to things that we find comfortable. Maybe if we applied some of that same creativity to the most marvelous assignment that we have as representatives of God, we'd find that it's not all that complex. The New Testament is filled with stories of people coming to faith in Christ. Stories that we have read and that have impacted us, and some of us have come to faith through those stories. Do you have a story? If you've come to faith in Christ, you have a story. And God can use that story. It seems to me that you can get a a lot of really good ideas about how to share the gospel by talking to people who are already doing it diligently. We have some in this body who are very faithful at it. We have missionaries that most of us know. They can tell us about things like being hospitable, about not protecting your time or your space. I'll never forget, you all have heard me say it before, Paul Lockie's statement, you cannot be a servant on your own schedule. Those words ring in my mind all the time. Things like, always looking for opportunities to love on other people. Colin McDougall, our dear brother, made a very persuasive case, makes a very persuasive case that you really don't have to worry a whole lot about how or when to proclaim the gospel or what words to use. What you need to be concerned with is praying for people. And if you're praying for individuals, then God is preparing your heart and God is preparing their heart so that when the time is right, everybody's ready. What greater strategy could there be than that? Beloved, Paul says that the word of faith by which we have redeemed is in our hearts and in our mouths. It cannot be contained. Every one of us is called to proclaim the good news by which we have received life in Jesus Christ. All right, so God is the sender. We are the sent. What is the message? What is it that we're supposed to be proclaiming? Now, we saw just a little earlier that that Jesus is the ultimate messenger And he's also the ultimate message. He is the one we are called to proclaim. In Romans 10, verses 15 and 16, Paul quotes these two verses from Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52 and 53. First, Isaiah 52, verse 7. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. And then in Isaiah 53, 1, which is a continuation of the same passage, he says, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The message is the arm of the Lord, and the arm of the Lord is Jesus Christ. The message is a person. And the good news that Isaiah is talking about isn't a mystery in terms of its content. 
In fact, Isaiah gets amazingly specific about that good news as, as he continues in this very passage, especially when you consider that this passage was written about 700 years before Christ came the first time. Now, if I say the words Isaiah 53, some of you already know what that passage is about, right? It's about Jesus Christ. It's about the suffering servant. It's about the one who took our sins onto himself. In fact, Isaiah 52, verse 13 through Isaiah 53 is perhaps the clearest passage in all the Old Testament, possibly in the whole Bible, on the issue of substitutionary atonement. It speaks of the suffering servant of God who would be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, 52.13. And yet, it tells us that he would first come as one whose appearance was marred more than any man. The one that God calls the arm of Yahweh would show up as one despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. And then in Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, we see the vivid declaration of Christ's punishment in our place. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves considered him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But in reality, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. Him for us. Can it be any clearer? That's the message. That's the report that God proclaimed and Israel refused to believe. Those are the glad tidings that we are now commanded to declare as God's kingdom of priests. The good news, the gospel, which God commands us to to declare and which he commands men to believe, is not a call to have a warm, fuzzy feeling about Jesus Christ. It is not fundamentally a call to open the door of our hearts to receive Christ in. That passage, Revelation 3, is actually written to believers. It isn't a call to give your life to Christ. That would make it a deal instead of a gift. Now, I'm not saying we're not called to give our lives to Christ. I'm saying that's not how we get justified in the eyes of God. Let me finish. If, if that if that gives you any trouble, let me finish. If you have trusted Jesus Christ, then your life already belongs to him as his child. The gospel is a call to believe the report, the message, the good news, the glad tidings concerning Jesus Christ, the word concerning Christ. And that's the same report that God proclaimed through his prophets in ages past. If you go back to Romans 1, the beginning of this epistle, Paul laid out his mission. He said, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for what? For the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. We just saw one of the great examples of that. 
And then he says that gospel of God is the message concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel we're called to preach is the message concerning who Jesus is and what Jesus did when he died on the cross and was raised from the dead. And that message, once believed makes an absolute claim on the life of everyone who believes it. He saved us not only to bring us into relationship with him for eternity, he saved us to use us for his glory while we're still here. He called us out of darkness into light in order that we might proclaim his excellencies. And right after Peter calls us to that proclamation in the passage we looked at before in 1 Peter 2, he says we are to keep our behavior excellent among men precisely because we're representatives of our Savior and our Master. The gospel is the call to believe in the one who is the greatest gift ever given and then as recipients of that gift to live all and only for him. Until we stand in his presence, the reason that you and I remain here and still consume air is so that we will be ambassadors of Jesus Christ. May every one of us be faithful in that calling. Now, when I went through verses 14 to 17 a few minutes ago, some of you no doubt noticed that I pretty much skipped verse 16. Here's what that verse says. It says, however, they did not all heed the glad tidings. <laughs> For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? And that's the quote from 50, Isaiah 53.1. Men have to hear the message to know what it is that God commands them to believe. But many who hear don't believe. And that caveat is central to where Paul is going with this passage because... In verses 18 to 21, he's going to talk all about Israel's failure to believe the message. Before we move on to that, there's a question that I think verse 16 raises that we should consider. Does the failure of many to believe the gospel change our assignment to declare it? The answer should be obvious. The answer is not unless we as servants of Jesus Christ are somehow greater than our master. Because nobody experienced the rejection that he experienced. The guarantee of rejection didn't stop him and it must not stop us. He was rejected to the point of death. And in the most marvelous irony of all time, his rejection became our life. Rejection never stopped any godly prophet or apostle or believer And beloved, our assignment is not to overcome objections to the gospel. I've seen entire seminars on how to overcome objections to the gospel. Our assignment is to proclaim the gospel. We don't have to argue people into the kingdom of God. In fact, that's the last thing in the world that we should be trying to do. 
Because we're not capable of arguing people into the kingdom of God. God is the one who changes men's hearts. God is the one who gives life. We're just messengers. We don't have to worry about how or whether people respond to the gospel. Our assignment with regard to proclaiming the gospel is simply to speak the truth in love. Can we do that? And you know what? Every single time we speak the marvelous message of the gospel in love, God calls that success. When Paul says in verse 16, they did not all heed the glad tidings, he was setting the stage for what he then goes on to say in verses 18 to 21. In the last verses of chapter 10, Paul moves from talking about the beautiful feet of those who proclaim the gospel of Christ to talking about the outstretched hands of God who has spent millennia proclaiming His amazing grace to a disobedient and obstinate people. And Paul quotes from three different Old Testament passages in verses 18 to 21. And those quotes focus on Israel's arrogant insistence that they are already holy when the reality is that they are not. And they focus on God's declaration that He was going to make them jealous by a nation which has no understanding. And that means God's going to save Gentiles and use Gentiles to save Jews. We saw a few weeks ago that nothing made the Jews in Jesus' day more hot under the collar than when Jesus declared that the grace of God was applied to Gentiles. And that jealous, angry response on the part of the Jews was no surprise to Jesus. It's been no surprise to God. He told Israel all the way back in Deuteronomy that they would refuse to walk in his ways and that he would make them jealous by that which was not a nation. He said, by a nation without understanding, I will anger you. That's Deuteronomy 32, 21, and that's what Paul quotes here. In the last two verses that have got up here, verses 20 and 21, Romans 10, Paul quotes from the first two verses of Isaiah 65. The passage he quotes takes us back to the same thing that he said at the end of Romans 9. He said, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it as if it were by faith, but by works. Here in Romans 10, verses 20 and 21, Paul quotes Isaiah. And Isaiah's rendering of these verses, Isaiah 65, 1 and 2, I permitted myself, God speaking, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. Does that sound like Romans 9? I said, here I am, here I am to a nation which did not call on my name. I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. As I I looked back through Isaiah 65 just to see this in context, there was one verse in there that just jumped out at me. It's Isaiah 65 verse 5, and it says this, 
God is indicting the Israelites and he's painting this vivid picture of their rebelliousness. And then he attributes this little quote to the Israelites. He says, here's what you guys say. You say to the Gentiles, keep to yourself, do not come near me for I am holier than you. Israel, who had been entrusted with the revelation of the one true God, hoarded the knowledge of God unto themselves and called that holiness. They treated the knowledge of God as if the very possession of it made them righteous. They treated the law, the prophets, the covenants, the sacrifices, the priesthood, and the tabernacle as their own special possession. And next week when my brother Philip teaches on Jonah, you're going to see that presented very, very vividly. They said to the Gentiles, Keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. How's that for a missionary mindset? And yet, in reality, those who had been entrusted with the knowledge of God did not know God at all. But because God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, that is not the end of the story for Israel. Just a few verses later in Isaiah 65, starting at verse 8, if you go back and look at that, you'll see there's a wonderful declaration about God's coming deliverance of Israel of his intention to bring forth from Jacob and from Judah his offspring, his chosen ones, his remnant. That's exactly where Paul's going to go in Romans 11. So I'll ask you to stay tuned. And again, I want to give a plug to what's going to happen next week. I'm going to be out, hopefully not breaking any limbs, skiing with the the youth from CBC next week. And my brother, Philip, who has come to be... uh, a wonderful resource to me personally uh, is going to be bringing a message about Jonah. That's right, isn't it, Philip? Jonah. All right. So be lifting him up and be here because that's going to be a great message. I'll be I'll be listening to it later if I probably you know with my leg in a cast. <laughs> Let's pray, loving Father. We do thank you uh, for for seeing fit to take these vessels these earthen vessels and to make us the bearers of the greatest news ever. Lord, that calling is such a sacred stewardship. It's such an amazing thing and it's such a wonderful privilege. Father, there are people all around us at work in our neighborhoods, people we come across in all kinds of settings who do not know you and they are utterly and desperately lost. And we ask you, Father, that you you would stir us up, that you would make our feet beautiful, that you would use us to proclaim boldly that marvelous message. Father, please, we pray. 
Jesus said, beseech the Lord of the harvest. We beseech you. We ask you to make us faithful, to convict us when we're not faithful. This is not a duty. This is not a burden. This is a blessing. This is an amazing privilege. Make us faithful. You're proclaiming the word of life. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.